Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and inviting you to listen to our latest podcast, number 917, with Dr. B.S. Ajakamar about his new book entitled Excellence Has No Borders How a Doctorpreneur Created a World Class Cancer Hospital Chain. This podcast, number 917, is brought to you by Steve Giblin, author of a new book entitled Walking in Mud and Navy SEALs 10 Rules for Surviving the New Normal. If you want to know more about Steve Giblin and his new book, please visit his website at www.frogmanleadership.com. That's www.frogmanleadership.com. And now for our featured podcast, listen to my engaging interview with Dr. B.S. Ajukumar about his new book entitled Excellence Has No Borders, How a Doctorpreneur Created a World-Class Cancer Hospital Chain. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And today, joining me from India is Dr. B.S. Ajakumar. And he has a new book out called Excellence Has No Borders. Good evening to you. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Greg. Thank you. Great. Now, what city are you joining us from? I'm in Bangalore. Bangalore. Okay. He's in Bangalore. And this book and his, uh, for my listeners, just so they know, um, he is the founder of HCB. HCG. Uh, HCG, sorry, HCG Network. And you can get that by going to hcgoncology.com to learn more about him. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about him before we get into the podcast. Dr. Ajakumar is the executive chairman of Healthcare Global Enterprises. He founded HCG to realize his vision of making advanced cancer care accessible to all. Uh, He's been a driving force between HCG's growth since its inception and served as the CEO from 2005 to 2021. His contributions in the field of cancer care in India and his success as a first-generation physician entrepreneur have been widely recognized. He's been awarded the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award and the C. II Regional Emerging Entrepreneur Award, and the BC Roy Award, and the Indian Science Monitor. Uh, He is also a practicing oncologist in the U.S. and India for over three decades, completed his residency uh, training in radiotherapy from the MD Anderson Hospital and Tumor Institute of the University of Texas, and has his residency training an oncology from the University of Virginia Hospital, Charlottesville, where he received his MBBS from St. John's Medical College. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the show and for you to speak about the groundbreaking work that you've done. And I think this book is really kind of a combination of the groundbreaking work and a lot of stories. And, you know, it is some about you, and a lot about what you do. And in the introduction of the book, you shared two big stories uh, of your life that sparked and nurtured you and gave you a sense of direction, you said. Uh, One is your story about losing $22 million and only having 
a half a million dollars left, I guess. Uh, <laughs> when you're able to rebuild your life and believe that anything is possible. The other one is the story of your son that taught you the fine art of detachment during times of crisis. Um, and obviously being an Indian descent in Eastern culture, you know, that detachment element is part of who you are. So your son was teaching you that. If you could share these stories with our listeners and how this kind of influenced you to kind of keep going, to have that motivation motivation to keep going. Greg, uh, as you said, you know, uh, that's right. I feel uh, throughout my life journey, as you will read in the book, I'm always being a positive person. I always look at glass being half full. And, you know, my journey in U.S. uh, going through the training in MD Anderson, training in medical oncology, and underseeing the advanced cases, you know, which came from all over the world. You know, actually, MD Anderson was like a uh, last hope. People would come, and I remember treating patients uh, with phase one drugs, very lot of toxicity, but still they said my body is an experiment. So these were all the things which gave me that, you know, the, the uh, motivation to do things which are very much needed. So along with that journey, you know, of course, I wanted to make sure that, you know, uh, when, I, when I traveled across India in 1980s, saw the great gap between how we were treating patients in U.S. in India, I felt that I need to come back. And when I look at the, the question you asked me about the 20 million loss, you know, I thought, you know, I, I never went to any uh, entity for saying I'm great, doing this great job and putting up this center in India. Please give me a donation. I am not, I don't have the DNA. I thought I should do everything on my own. So with this in mind, you know, I had, uh, you know, built this kind of uh, fortune over multiple decades. But unfortunately, in 2000, you know, with the bubble and I lost the money, you know, it was very easy for me to give up and go back to my practice. Uh, And that is what at one time I remember my wife telling, maybe you have to go back, forget your dreams about India. But I became more determined. You know, I, I, I knew that there is no going back on it. Whatever the issues are, I will take the challenge and do it. And that has been a remarkable journey. I put the pieces together, slowly built my life back. And, you know, in 2003-04, you know, I moved back, uh, somehow convinced my family, moved back. And part of the reason I had this uh, thought process and approach and challenge is because of my son. Because my son, you know, when he was born in 1990, 1992, we made a diagnosis of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I took him all over U.S., Canada for treatment. There was no treatment. In fact, I remember at the university in Iowa, he being told that uh, the expert doctor told me that, doctor, don't waste your time. He's not going to live, he's not going to live beyond 16. But, you know, uh, as a, uh, as approach, uh, having been an oncologist, I said, okay, I told him, well, let us accept. Let us see what we can do better on that. So here we are today with all the things, uh, you know, I did some research and also 
you know, looked at uh, some form of therapy and the way we approached him. Today, he's 32, is the longest survivor in Russia and one of the longest survivors doing with good quality of life. But what happened to him four years ago uh, when he had a fall and, you know, went into septic shock and when he had, uh, you know, cyst, multi-organ failure, uh, and, you know, obviously, you know, these kids are uh, very immunosuppressed because they are on long-time steroids and uh, very difficult to manage. Very few people survive from these kind of episodes. But we pulled him out. He was on a ventilator. Actually, I managed him at home in a home ICU because of the adrenaline crisis. A lot of things happened. I learned a lot. I remember his blood pressure being uh, like 60 by 0, one. 184 heart rate, but we pulled him out and asked him one question. Uh, what were you thinking when all of this was happening? He said, I knew somehow you'll pull me out. That was his answer, you know? So <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, what, you know, what, you know it's, uh, they say like father, like son, right? So, you know, he has his positive mental attitude. <laughs> Here he is 32, wasn't supposed to survive all that. What a, what a wonderful story, you know? And what a wonderful thing for a father to be so involved in, you know, his care and understanding and your wife as well, I'm sure. And, you you know, you state in chapter two that there is no greater nightmare for uh, a helpless five-year-old than an elder brother sibling who is a super achiever. And on this, you're referring to your brother, Amar. Um, yeah. What experience did you have living under his shadow, if he's like the super achiever. <laughs> As uh, you know, being the second son, my brother being a uh, very, like you say, super achiever, uh, at the age of five, he could quote a Shakespearean plays, he could take part in drama, great orator. All of that, uh, you know, had an influence on my dad. And he was, he was a super achiever and I had to grow under his shadow. But uh, I, I felt, you know, the issue was I was uh, underestimated in the family. Uh, you know, I was like, uh, maybe they thought I will not achieve anything. My mom at one time was telling maybe he'll become a sportsman or, a, or work in some place. Uh, something, you know, they, they were, it was a put down effect, which I don't think they meant it that way. But uh, I heard these conversations. But I was quite good. But uh, some of the instances where he humiliated me, my brother, helped me a lot. That is, that is where, you know, I see sometimes there are turning points in your life. When he did that, that I'm no good, I took it as a challenge. And I remember in my 10th grade, I overtook him in the grade. That immediately my family like woke up. My God, he's good. So suddenly my father comes to me and says, Oh, your astrology says you're going to be a great doctor, you know. So suddenly they recognized me, which was, you know, which was good. But uh, living under the shadow for years, uh, while it is difficult, I felt it has really given me some insights into life and made me more confident and uh, challenge the system. That is where, you know, I kind of, uh, me being an entrepreneur today is partly because of that. I'd like to take risks and challenge the system. That is where it has helped me. Wow. Well, that's a great story. And now 
You know, in chapter four, you speak about working temporarily in a nursing home where you ended up working for just two days when you had to quit because your sense of purpose. And I think this is important element here about this book and about your drive is somebody defining their purpose in life and why are they waking up in the morning and what are they doing it for and who are they serving? Um, What are the factors that led you to quit your job? And what advice can you give to the listeners who are in kind of the same situation? There's a lot of listeners out there who listen to my show because they want to be inspired. They want to do something different in their life. They want to transform their seekers. They're seeking something new and different in their life. What advice would you have them? Would you give them? See, on this matter, um, when I came to U.S., uh, as a fully qualified doctor, I was waiting for my residency post. But, you know, usually the residency post starts in June, July. And my brother said, while you're waiting, why don't you maybe earn some money, go to Boston area, work in a nursing home. I had still not got the residency post. Always you feel insecure, of course. And here you are dependent on the brother. So I said, okay, I'll try. But when I went there, you know, I was doing some job which is not even done by nurses. You know, and for a pay, I said, is this what it is life about? You know, should I really compromise what I am, what I'm capable and do this? I said, uh, certainly I did not come for this. Well, in case I cannot get my residency, maybe I can go back to India for a year and come back later. <clears throat> I can do more service there actually as a doctor. So with this in mind, even though, you know, U.S. was, you know, obviously people looked at U.S., people wanted to come, I was ready to go back. So at this when, that is when I called my brother and said, look, I had a Greyhound um, ticket, a round trip, actually. So I said, look, I still have the round trip. I'm coming back. I don't want to be here. I know I, I just cannot feel like I, I belong here to do this kind of work. However great it is, I don't belong. So what I want to tell people is the introspection is very important. Introspection to see who we are, what we are, why we have come. And based on that, we have to take a call. The call may be a difficult one. The easy route is very, uh, not that, you know, you can take an easy route. That is, that's there available. Okay, I'll work here, earn some money till whatever happens. But I said, that is not me. Whatever the difficulties are, I am going to do what I want to do. Not, you know, this is why I came here. I want to be an expert in oncology. If that is what happens, I will do it. So with that determination, I moved back. Unfortunately, I got a post in University of Virginia. And then, of course, you know, the the Mecca of oncology, MD Anderson. And that too, the MD Anderson was an amazing story. You know, they told me, uh, look, uh, we don't have any post for three years. And if you want, you can come for interview. Again, I took a Greyhound from Chicago and <laughs> went all the way. Uh, and when I landed in, uh, in Houston, when they interviewed me for three days, uh, they were very impressed, uh, I suppose, because of that. They said, not only we are going to offer you a post right away, but we'll give you a big jump in your salary, in your stipend, fellowship program. So those were the, you know, those give you that confidence, 
man, I must be good, you know, <laughs> to be recognized by MD Anderson. So yeah. suddenly, you know, that changes your whole perspective and gives you that self-confidence and then to move on. And then that is why I always say, we can put me in a, in a place in Alaska, in the middle of nowhere, I will come out alive. Even though, you know, the Brooks Range, people say they don't come out alive if they're thrown there. Mm. But I always felt I come out ahead. And I used to play tennis a lot. And people, you know, um, I won the city doubles championship where I was near Chicago. And uh, my friend Ray and me, we always used to say, I used to really go after him in singles. He used to say, why is it you are down five love? And, and low 40, you're still fighting as though you're going to win. I said, yeah, every time, why not? You know, I may come back. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because within that, you know, when you quit a job, there's an element, obviously, of risk. You know, no money coming in. You've got to find something else. And it, it just shows me that along with your faith in that you're going to come out okay, you're willing to take risks. And, you know, in chapter five, you speak about the situation that made you change your choice of specialty in medical studies. You originally set off, and I just had a heart surgeon on here speaking, uh, you you wanted to be a cardiologist or a cardiac surgeon, um, thoracic surgeon. And because of that, your favorite subject in medical school, you were very good at it. Can you let the listeners know what was the new specialty and what made you switch to a different specialty when really your focus was cardiology? Yeah, you know, as a medical student uh, uh, in those years, we are talking about 19, uh, uh, early 70s, uh, oncology was not looked upon as a good subject because there were no definite treatments and we were not exposed to that much. But as a cardiology, everybody was craving for cardiologists. And, you know, you're a cardiologist means, you know, your parents will feel good. My son is a cardiologist. But I, I always liked cardiology, you know, listening to the murmurs and telling people what it is, making a diagnosis. But when I came to final year and, uh, you know, I saw one of the most um, amazing things, a young girl with a rheuma rheumatic heart disease. And she also had myeloid leukemia. And that is when I realized, my God, you know, uh, she may not live long. This was in India. So this kind of, uh, then, of course, I got into rotation. I never saw her. I would assume she died. But when I went to U.S. in my rotating internship at Virginia, I saw again people with a lot of pain. And a lot of, uh, you know, no treatments, morphine. So I asked my professor, look, uh, what is going on in cancer care? Why is this, you know, and it was an evolving field. That is when I decided what is heart? Heart is only a pump. What is cancer? Something which happens within your body. The challenges are much more. How do we diagnose cancer and what may be the treatment? And there is so much research you can do. That is what prompted me to really even look at MD Anderson as a dedicated cancer center and go there, involve in the extensive research in terms of development of therapeutics. So what really prompted me to look at oncology is a challenge. And what I felt is that oncology patients are not treated properly. We've used the words victims 
and we said terminal care hospice care palliative care so many terminologies were used and even the society was using cancer word if there is corruption nepotism in the society people said it's a cancer of the society yeah. so cancer had such a name mm-hmm. for me it was i think man i should take up this challenge and really understand this so called dreadly disease and uh, contribute to that so that is how i i really took up the challenge well it's interesting because um uh when my son got chronic myelogenous leukemia and he was 21 years old it usually doesn't oh. happen as you know to a younger yeah. people and we went um to he was at UCLA at the time i uh, was a student actually at the time uh and we went to city of hope and they said well you can do all of these um radiation treatments and so on and he was 21 he was just 21 at the time or you can take this new drug called glevac yeah and we put him on glevac he chose the glevac instead of it it is now let's see how many years later we're uh he is 41 next month Wow. So 20 years he's been on uh I think he's on spry cell now. Yeah. Not Glevac. But it just shows you the advancement that's been made. You're right. It's a chronic many of the leukemias can be treated with good treatment and a good right. regimen. Um and I also believe in the fact that diet and exercise and all kinds of things play a major role in all of that as well. Now you should that that is doing good that's great news good He is I have two grandchildren which I didn't oh. know I was going to have so I'm very yeah. happy for that Um you know you shared a lot of medical stories in the book and one was a story of an African American girl who got sepsis who had sepsis Uh tell us a story about this patient and why you consider what happened to her as your mistake you called it Um you know sepsis is something that people can get right No I think uh, as a doctor you may spend uh, you know half an hour with the patient 30 minutes but the patient always lives with you see you always wonder could i have done something something different and you know when the patient goes through the sepsis septic shock so many things happen and you lose a patient you you know you remember their smiling face you remember i know <clears throat> their trust in you they come with their hope and you you put all your effort you go to bed you think of them but you feel when you lose somebody somehow it sticks with you it is doesn't mean you know you are attached but you feel always is there something else i could have done and some of the initial phases i was going through with this patient where i was seeing so many sick patients and whenever you lose somebody it is something it was used to kind of really be with me i won't say it would haunt me but it be with me it is like more i could have done something else should i have consulted some other specialist should i have put together a plan should i have done some other insertion of catheter so many things come across and this is something you know people feel correct honestly after years to get to get over it you don't you know each patient is precious to you whether that is why i suppose some of us become doctors 
and it is never each life you lose or each life you gain you you learn something from it and you live with it well and you know uh, this doctor that was on who's a heart a world famous heart surgeon simon maltus um who's now here in the us started in canada but uh, 160 articles written and just a phenomenal he was saying that you know during the pandemic which i don't know about india right now but it has subsided tremendously here that you know heart surgeries were um pushed off you know it was kind of like well let's wait when a wait till after the pandemic and i make this commentary for this reason because he said you know we would lose patients or we didn't know if it was uh covid or if it was something else right they needed the heart surgery so many of them would come in with conditions or they come in with ailments um did you experience this just frenetic challenge uh in your clinics during covid and i'm saying it's not that it's completely gone maybe in india but here in the us we are seeing huge reduction in it uh how was it for you to operate during that time yeah the in india we have had two waves even now of course the the covid is receding and it's almost life back to normal but in the first wave the no nobody expected how it will do and uh, the you may know that india went to complete lockdown yeah and with that there was no transportation no patients were coming literally you know the whole oncology patients would not come and uh, only those who had great difficulty because there was no public transportation even to come by cars it was difficult there were a lot of uh, issues so what happened was nearly 20 25% of the cases we we saw we did some data collection came in after the first wave with more advanced diseases obviously they missed out several months so that became an issue but as we were dealing with this the second wave came which was really devastating and we had we had to convert some of our you know covid patients we have to manage at one time i remember uh, you know this was about uh, about a year ago we had uh, almost 45 patients on ventilator and we didn't have any more ventilators available and we had many more patients coming in so it was a crisis management we were all up in the night trying to pull a ventilator from there fly fly and ventilator from other center but it was like a mash unit you know and it was you know it was just uh, you know amazing how people came together there were rumors oxygen is going to run out media was talking about oxygen we were i was getting calls from media what is going to happen and there were a lot of people you know calling to say can you give me a bed friends relatives you know uh, people from all walks of life my neighbors their relatives so it was like a once in a life experience but i am happy to say that you know uh, the majority of the people came out well right. even in oncology patients we always felt they will have more mortality but it was not so it was equal to the rest and it was actually not even equal to this maybe even less because of various reasons but uh, the presumption the assumption that cancer patients will have more mortality with covid because of the immunosuppressed uh, situation was not true it did huh. not happen that's very interesting it was amazing 
Yeah. That's yeah. I, I, especially somebody from India saying that, you know, because you never know in today's world when the media puts something out, how much is true and how much is propaganda. Right. I mean, look at this thing today with Ukraine. Yes, we know it's yeah. happening, but how much, <laughs> how much can we depend on? And, you know, in chapter nine, you state that philosophy is about seeking knowledge and about the fundamental aspects of life. And you state further that there is a lot you can learn about life from someone who is facing imminent death or finitude. Um, I know this last two years, I lost two brothers. So it got me to think about finitude a lot more realistically. Um, this led you to your learning towards what you call, and you, what is it, the only philosophy? How do you say it? Onco, onco philosophy. Onco philosophy. Talk to the audience about the concept of onco philosophy. What, what, what is that? <laughs> you know, we all uh, say philosophy can be written by read from other great philosophers. Philosophy is all about watching and learning from people, in my view. You know, like when you talk about people like Socrates, uh, you know, they all didn't read books. They learned from watching people, habits, looking at it. For me, when I look at an oncology patient, I always used to tell, look, I may be the person giving you advice, consultation, but really I'm learning a lot from you more than what you think, possibly what I am giving you. Because you look at a cancer patient, Greg, you look at, imagine a patient who is, I treated her for a breast cancer patient for almost eight years. And this was a Sunday afternoon. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, the disease, uh, when she came to me, it was in the bone. But she lived for eight years with all the treatments. And then uh, she, uh, on a Sunday afternoon, her blood pressure was dropping. She was in you know multi-organ failure, high calcium, but she was still alert. And you know, as I walked into the room, and, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I just couldn't keep my tears. And, uh, you know, as normally they do, family walked out. And I just held her hand and um, she just took something and wiped my eye. You know, she was 60 by zero, about to die and said, don't cry, Dr. AJ. You know, you have given me good eight years of life. Wow. You know, this kind of thing, you know, lives with you. Here is a patient consoling the doctor when she's <laughs> about to die. You know, yeah. and, and you know, it just is. And then another patient, you know, uh, who was uh, that patient thought I could walk on water. She was uh, one of those patients who wanted to do everything in life, like going cross country ski. She was from Ireland originally, her family. She wanted to go back, but somebody had told her she has only six months to live. But you know, we put together a plan having trained in MD Anderson. I did a lot of things, and she lived for a long time. And, you know, one of the things is I was in India in the mid-80s. At that time, she had the disease that progressed into a lung. So my nurse called me to say, look, uh, she's very sick. Uh, as soon as you come, you should go and see her. So normally we don't go to the house. But I did go to her house as soon as I arrived back in India. And this is something, you know, I, I cannot get over. I talked to her and said, maybe tomorrow we can look at some investigational treatment. That He said, no, I just wanted to thank you. In eight years, I've done everything in life I've planned for, I've achieved. So that night, you know, that she had all waited for me to come. That night she died after I left. So these things, you know, really make you feel learning. Of, these are philosophies. 
you know, if you don't learn from that, I felt I'm stupid. You know, I have to learn from this. And I think and that I is think, when you look at life in a different way. You know, I think you said it uh, 15 minutes ago, and I and I had another doctor on here, Doctor Steve Bazal, emergency room physician, but really would put his patients into um, hypnosis. And you know, he he said the white coat of a doctor and the first words out of their mouth are so important. So, you know, the doc oncologists can give a patient a report and say, well, you have six months to live. Or you could say something like, Hey, you're going to live as long as you want to live. We can fight this right. Versus telling somebody and implanting in their subconscious that they are going to actually pass away and they've only got six months, pack your bags, go home, whatever. I can't imagine anything worse a doctor saying to a patient than how they actually treat them at that moment, at that time. Um, and I'm sure you concur with that, right? Absolutely, Craig. You know, I have had so many patient instances where, you know, we are, we are going along it is very unfortunate patients are doing well even though they have metastatic disease but they go for somewhere and the doctor says you know whatever reason oh your lung is full of disease doctor they you know they go and say oh yeah you may have 6 months to live you know they give up and whatever progress we would have made you know everything would be of no good anymore because they mentally they would give up only 6 month what the hell why am i going through all this treatment you know i have been instances where there is one remarkable instance where in 1974 before i joined started my practice outside of chicago a patient was operated on a farmer where he had lung full of disease the doctor said look you have enjoy your last summer that's it close the case he came to see me in 1980 with a lump under his arm i said doctor and i said what happened here looked at it please see my records so i looked at the record he said you know doctor had told me that i have 6 months to live last summer for last 6 years i've been waiting for this last summer <laughs> that's a great story yeah you know and that's the and that is the important the subconscious is so strong and we don't really realize it the will like you said put you in the middle of alaska and you'll be able to get out alive you know as long as you believe you can get out alive good chances are you're going to get out alive and um so you stay in chapter 13 you tell the story of your journey exploring cancer cancer in india which we've talked about and state that the whole trip for you was a philosophical lesson in understanding life Share with the listeners if you would some of the great life lessons that you've learned from this exploration of looking at not heart or being a cardiac surgeon or a cardiologist but becoming more of an oncologist to treat a disease which literally you believe is completely curable. Yeah, even if you cannot cure it's a chronic disease. and for me when i started looking at india the reason you know what attracted me to india in 1985 when i did the six months uh, you know travel across india i saw one baby waiting for 12 hours to get a very primitive form of treatment a big sarcoma of the stomach 
And I saw a lady who had cervix cancer bleeding being just given away and said, do whatever you want. And, you know, three weeks later, we treated at our hospital. And here she was waving at me after three weeks, you know, much better with no bleeding. So when you look at this, he said, you know what? I am much needed here. This is where I have to come back. Not I may have affluence. I may have all I want in U.S. I may have a good life. But that is not why I became a doctor. See, these are the turning points in your life when you look at it. So in spite of arts, in spite of a lot of people, my dad, of course, you know, in 90, you know, he passed away in 99. Before that, he was not at all in favor of me coming back. He saw me, I'm leading a good life. You know, what else you want? Why do you want to come and struggle here? But, you know, struggle is in a way is good. You should struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, people talk about always happiness and all. in a way, struggle is also a form of happiness. When you know you want to do something in order to achieve, if you struggle, that journey itself is a pleasure because you are doing something with a focus. So uh, what we did with HCG, honestly, Greg, we changed a paradigm shift in a massive country like India, how we approach cancer care. People thought India is a poor country. India cannot have technology. India, you know, only government, few institutions can treat. In private care, you cannot give cancer, particularly high technology. I prove, I disproved all of them. I brought in high technology, not only into big cities, but tier two, tier three cities. High linear accelerator, PET scans, genomic labs. What we have shown is cancer doesn't know rich from poor. Cancer can attack anyone. The only way is to treat cancer the right way first time. And so with this kind of technology, we have access to 500 million people at CG today in India. And with that, you know, once we started doing that, there are many people who have followed, fortunately. They said, if CG can do, if AJ Kumar can do, we can also do. So with that in mind, there are so many linear accelerators, so many PET scans. So it is a great thing. And now we are going into tier three cities and all. So, you know, it goes to show, that is why I call it excellence has no borders. Doesn't matter, Richard, whatever. Excellence is excellence. You have to go there and do your excellent treatment. You cannot say you are poor, I'm going to give you inferior form of treatment. Cancer is not going to forgive you. You know, so we have to treat these patients as though they are my own mother, brother, sister or, or uncle. You know, you cannot treat them any other way. You have to bridge the gap. That is our Harvard Business School study. When Harvard did a study, they were amazed. How were you able to bridge this gap? We were able to. It is doable. You know, well, excellence, excellence has no borders. You're right. And it's. I'm so honored to be able to meet you and do the podcast because people like you who have the compassion and dedication uh, for all humanity, all mankind, uh, is so important. And, you know, the thing that's going to heal this world is really going to be empathy. Um, And empathy, the way you want to look at it is empathy and compassion is missing in so many places. And that leads me to my last question. In the last chapter, you speak about India's healthcare system and the state of what you want to see is a value-based healthcare system. 
what is your vision of this and what needs to change to achieve this in India? Because, you know, in the United States, we have, okay, people say maybe one of the best healthcare systems, one of the most expensive healthcare systems, but I always wonder why we lag so far behind in so many things when we supposedly have the best healthcare system. Um, and I and then there's so much we could talk about with with the healthcare system here versus the healthcare system in India. But what do you really envision for India's healthcare system? See, Greg, uh, U.S. by the way has a very good healthcare system, but the cost is very high. That is why the value based healthcare system makes sense for a country like India. You know, but India is two countries within a country. You have 350 million population, which is almost as big as United States or Europe, which are in the middle class, upper middle class, demanding highest form of health care, which can afford. And you have 900 million, which is not there, which is in the lower strata. How do you bridge the gap? How do you even service 300 million is a challenge. So one of the things we have come up, you know, is India, by the way, the cost is very low. You know, I can do a PET scan for $300, what costs $2,500 in U.S. Yeah. I can do a CT scan for less than $100, not even $50, which costs, you know, like $500, $800. So we know the cost is very low because of various reasons. Do you have, pardon me for interrupting, but do you have a large influx of U.S. citizens coming to India to seek health care or no? No, we don't have U.S. because of the insurance issue. They don't cover. And also there is medical legal issue if something goes wrong and people won't like to come here. But we have a lot of people who come from Africa, Middle East, uh, and other parts of the world. You know, we ourselves, nearly 20% of our uh, work is international patients. But... Coming back to this, what is an answer to India, which we advocate, you know, is a universal health care, like what we have in U.S. to some extent with no limits. And it can be achieved. What we have proposed is India is full of youths. 65% are youths in India. So everybody has a cell phone. So we are proposing a tax on the cell phone as what we call as a health cess tax, which you collect and create an endowment for the to take care of people. And, you know, we, when, when I was working in U.S., I paid a Medicare tax, so which was helping the Medicare people. Like that, we create that kind of a system where everybody is covered. Brazil has done that very well. So we want to use that. That is what we are advocating. But there are some issues why the government has not picked up on that. They have come up with some schemes and all. It's not really working majority of the people still have to pay out of pocket. And that is one area where uh, we have to hopefully come to a solution very soon. But I think it will happen in the next few years. There is a lot of interest to change the healthcare system. So we are all putting all our efforts to make this happen. So that, you know, to me, any country to become an advanced country, that is what I wrote, education and health are the most important. If you bring up the education standards and health standards to the level, then you are almost there. So that is that is where we are missing at this point. By the way, the excellence as no borders name was given by my son-in-law Eric, you know, and he, you know, he's he's the one who came up with that name. <laughs> well, it's a good title for your book. It's also a yeah. good title for you, 
yes. as a human soul making his journey through life and having the impact on as many people as you've had. Um, I just want to acknowledge that. And for all my listeners, the thousands of patients that come to HCG in India to be treated, whether they're coming from Africa or they're Indian or whoever they are, it's, it's a huge um, uh, success story for you. Uh, and especially after all the bumps in the road that you went through uh, <laughs> a, as a person. And I, and I know you have a new CEO now. I saw the young man in your, um, yeah. in your profiles there. And congratulations on your growth. Congratulations nice. on this book. And to get this message out worldwide, not just, you know, in India, but to have podcasts with people like myself. Um, because like you said, you can learn from anyone and observing what they're doing. And I think what's important is if this podcast gets in the right hands, somebody hears you and understands you, and who knows, maybe wants to make an investment into HCG, right? Because <laughs> they see they see that this is going to expand to 1.3 billion people, right? Or whatever the number yeah. is at this point. <laughs> but thank you, thank you, uh, Dr. Ajay Kumar. I really appreciate it. You've been a wonderful guest uh, to have on the show. Um, and the book, even though only in PDF form, was a wonderful book. We really appreciate that. And I appreciate you. I think we have ordered a book. I don't know. It should come to you. It, it didn't come yet, but I, I will, I'm looking forward to getting a signed copy. <laughs> yeah, I will. Namaste thanks to you. Thank, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. To say. You're phenomenal. Your interview was great. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.